Welcome to the Making Note podcast. I'm your host, Avish Bama, and I'm also the founder and CEO of a San Francisco-based startup called Sonia.ai. We're building a note-taking assistant that captures intelligence from meetings to help take notes, summarize, and handle follow-ups for you. Our mission is to help leverage AI to give you your time back. And this podcast is about getting leverage in life. So we'll be diving into three areas, health, wealth, and happiness. In today's episode, we talk to Ramin Etihad. Ramin is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and he's also a startup founder. I recently did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the first time, and um, it was one of the most intricate uh, yet addictive sports that I've come across. And it has a lot of tie-ins to starting companies. So here's Ramin. Uh, when did you get into martial arts? I mean, you're you're oh, pretty man. built dude, so I'm guessing you've been in for a while. Yeah, so I've been doing martial arts since I was seven, maybe six, six or seven years old. Yeah. What happened is I moved from San Jose to Campbell, and I like really didn't like the community in the neighborhood. I was like really young. My parents were always at work, and my grandma was like, well, he keeps like, fighting imaginary people in the living room why don't we just take them to a karate class so you never you you were never one to like get beat up and then get into it after the fact um no i was too young at that point. proactive about yeah i'm i'm sure i was bullied um i mean if we want to go down this track basically i was bullied when i was younger because i didn't learn english until i was like four so i went into kindergarten as a as a young kindergartner uh i'm a november baby so you're kind of like right on that on that line of if you want to bump up or stay back. Yeah. And I decided to bump up. So I was like, where are you you from? Uh, well, I grew up in the Bay area, but because my whole family migrated here from Iran about a year before I was born. So they didn't speak any English. So no one spoke English at home. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I was just caught in this kind of juxtaposition of, of Iranian and Farsi at home and English on the outside, but I didn't really go out until I was in kindergarten. Okay. And then you got into it when you were like six. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, what did you start off with? Started off with Taekwondo, really liked it. Uh, and then my dad got me into Kung Fu a couple of years later. So I did a ton of Taekwondo, a little bit of Kung Fu, got into some American style kickboxing as a teenager, uh, took that really seriously. And then ultimately found around 17, 18, found Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is something I still do every day. I still do a lot of striking and other martial arts as well, but my core focus is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Can we just like walk through the differences with those? Absolutely. So if you think about the martial arts, they're split into, uh, if you take like weapons, like swords, knives, stuff like that out and they're hand-to-hand combat, there's two different umbrellas or two different kind of genres. There's striking arts and grappling arts. So striking art would be something where you're projecting your bones at another human being. That sounds kind of crazy, but it's basically what it is. Punching, kicking, elbowing, kneeing, whatever else. These would include kind of boxing, Western style boxing, kickboxing, Kung Fu, karate, anything along that path where you're you're throwing uh, strikes and you're blocking or fending off strikes. So that's like Kung Fu? Yes. Right. Yeah, boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, anything like that. Mm The other side of the house is grappling arts. They generally don't involve any hitting or blocking hits at all. And they're really focused on taking someone, putting them on the ground, and then doing something there, depending on what the rule set is or what the goal is. So that would include kind of uh, global wrestling, like regular wrestling you see on the Olympics, judo, which is really heavy on throwing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is very heavy on ground fighting, uh, and other more niche arts like sambo, which are pretty well encompassing but focus on throwing and joint manipulation okay 
And so when when you initially got started, you were doing striking, and I'm guessing as a kid, you aren't allowed to strike the head. Correct. So I was doing a lot of striking. Now, what's interesting is in youth Taekwondo tournaments, they do allow you to strike the head. They allow you to kick the head, but punch the body, which is kind of crazy. Um, Don't people get knocked out? All the time. It's kind of Kids stupid. get knocked out. Kids getting knocked out. That's insane. Yeah. It, it, and I've seen Taekwondo tournaments that are on like basketball courts. It's like not even matted. Oh, no. It's like you get knocked out and you can hit your head on the ground. It's stupid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so did a lot of striking as a youth. And then when I got into... Jiu-jitsu was because one of my buddies, actually, uh, his name is Thomas. He did jiu-jitsu for like a month and judo for three months. We were at the park one day, and he was saying that all the striking I've learned my whole life doesn't matter because he knows how to grapple. And I was like, well, that seems silly. I'm bigger than you. I'm tough. I've been doing this since I was young. Why don't we just have a friendly spar? And we did, and it was at the park. And I actually took him down. He reversed me and got me in an elbow lock, and I had to tap because I, was, I had to like submit, basically tap out. Um, and I was blown away that I've been, you know, studying the martial arts for 10 years and I couldn't uh, beat someone who's been only been doing four months of grappling arts. So I went and signed up for jujitsu the next day. And uh, like, what are the major, um, it's just all technique and it's mostly ground game. Correct. So right. it's, it's learning how to take your opponent or assailant to the ground, control them there, take positions. And there's like a progressive chain up the body where you're trying to get to a mounted or dominant position. Uh, then you can attack the joints like elbows, shoulders, knees, or go for chokes uh, around the neck. Yeah, interesting. And I did jujitsu, and it was one of the hardest workouts I've ever. It's very tough. Did. Yeah, and that's just because you're using all of these like micro muscles yeah. in every which way. Constantly applying static strength uh, while also being quick and moving and trying to like flow out in and out of positions as well. Yeah. And so now uh, you mostly do jujitsu. I do. I still do striking arts maybe once or twice a week, um, like Muay Thai or boxing or something like that. But I find myself doing a lot of Brazilian jujitsu, maybe six days a week. Have you found that um, it's been like a cathartic type of experience for you? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I you know even after today, I'm probably going to go do jujitsu. I'm. I don't know why. I just have to go. If I don't go, I won't feel right. So, it's like a stress reliever. It's like a stress reliever, but yeah. there's also a lot of stress while you're in there. And this is where I think it overlaps with the startup life a lot. It's like I can go and in a jujitsu session have what it feels like the worst day ever and the best day ever all in the same practice. Mm, you know? How so? Well, I could go in and be in really, really bad situations where, I mean, tonight I, I'm going to go grapple with my friend Rich O'Toole. He's a professional fighter. He's had professional fights. He's now... Um, joining the the fire crew he's going to be a fireman and he's like a tough guy and he's probably going to get me in some bad positions and it's going to suck it would be much easier to go play basketball or play squash which i grew up playing or go to the gym but i'm going to go put myself in these uncomfortable positions get comfortable in them and get out of them and maybe even catch him so in the moment where i'm uncomfortable it sucks and i'm like why did i come here man it's monday at 8 p.m i could be doing anything else right now and then through perseverance, you get out of that moment, you advance to a better position. Maybe I end up winning from there. Maybe I don't, but I knew at least that I can get out of the shit. 
Yeah. Excuse my or French. Yeah, French, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can swear on this podcast. At least and, I have before, but yeah. And that feels a lot like a day in startup life, right? You have major highs and major lows. I can sit in a meeting where we're going to hire two key executives, be super excited about them, and then realize that it's going to give us some serious solvency issues a month out if we try to hire them both right now. Right. And that's kind of a bad position where you see the light, much like every position in jujitsu. It's like, okay, well, what am I going to do to incrementally improve right now to make sure that we can make both these hires and not have a cash issue? Totally. I, one of the best um, pieces of advice I got on negotiating was to learn how to negotiate from a weak position always. So like oftentimes as a startup founder, you are negotiating from a weak position because you don't have leverage. Constantly. Um, and, and once you kind of get um, acclimated with, okay, I'm going to be negotiating out of a point of weakness where the other person has leverage and being able to understand where they're going to uh, attack um, I could see parallels between that and, uh, martial arts. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, interesting. So like as you, how long have you been involved with the, uh, startup space? I think I've had my eye on it and been interested in it for the past 10 years or so. Um, and I've been operating at my uh, own startup for four years now. Okay. And what does your current company do? Uh, we've gone through a lot of different blossomings, as you would imagine, um, as kind of any startup does in the early days. Uh, but we are an enterprise asset management solution. So it's B2B SaaS. Uh, and it's a solution that IT teams or ops teams use to track all of their capital or fixed assets that may be inside of their offices or maybe out in the field. And we're really built for a world where everything is becoming connected to the internet. So if you think about the past, uh, if I needed to track fixed assets, whether it's a data center asset or a table or something that we have you know, in the field, I would have a keyboard for it. I'd have a bunch of human input, manual input about the device. What does it look like? What are its specs and so on? But now machines are more self-aware than we could ever be about them. So we're really in the business of putting digital clones or digital twins of these devices that exist in the real world in the cloud so you can do powerful things with that data. So like what would kind of your, your most typical example be um, with, with a customer? Sure. I mean, we have some really interesting use cases. One such use case would be if you've been to New York City recently, we have a customer out there called Intersection. They've taken all the phone booths out of the ground and, re and replaced them with these big Wi-Fi pylons that have two 60-inch screen TVs on either side and provide Wi-Fi to effectively the first floor of New York City, but also allow you to go run searches, browse the internet, charge your phone, and do all this kind of stuff. If you think about what that thing is, I mean, it's an IoT device with a Linux box in the middle, and it's spitting out a bunch of data, and we become the orchestration layer that helps uh, run the workflow of, should this go to service company one? Should this go back to HQ? Should we go create a Zendesk ticket around it? Um, is Splunk reporting the right things coming off the machine? and so on. So it becomes kind of the workflow tool for installing and getting these things into ground and then any sort of reactive or preventative maintenance that comes up around that device. I'm curious. So how did you guys get to this point? You mentioned you guys have been through kind of a bunch of twists and turns, much like every other startup. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we always started with an eye on enterprise software and we, you know, uh, this is a few years back. A lot of people were building consumer apps. Mobile was really hot. We're like, what does mobile look like in the enterprise? But we want to solve a back office problem, something we feel is complex, and we want to bring good design and good UX to the enterprise where 
we felt that you know that was lacking in a major way in enterprise software. My background, I worked at SuccessFactors and SAP. SuccessFactors mm-hmm. was a SaaS darling. Uh, you know, in ten years, got to. 330 million in ARR sold the company for 3.4 billion to SAP um, with a f- fundamentally great leader in La- Lars Dahlgaard. Um, and so I learned a lot about enterprise software and enterprise SaaS and all of this, but the apps still sucked. The products didn't work. I was on the alliances team, and as much as I loved SuccessFactors, they didn't even have an API. So we had an alliances organization integrating with other solutions with no API. I mean, like, what are we supposed to do here? Um, so we we felt that we could make beautifully simpler and easier apps to use that still solved a complex business challenge. Uh, when we approached this problem, we wanted we, we really felt like everything in the world needed to be tracked. And we felt like Workday was building the system of record for your people. Salesforce was building the system of record for your customers. And we wanted to emerge as the system of record for all your things. Um, so we went to CIOs with this problem and they were like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, but, the, but the use cases were very broad. So we did a project with a manufacturer who wanted to track the HVAC units in all of their facilities. And then we uh, did another project with another manufacturer actually who wanted to track robotics gear that was on the shop floor. Um, And there were a few other facilities type use cases around this. But what we saw across all the requirements, the overlap between all requirements was that you have an object, you have metadata about that object coming in from multiple data sources, and you wanna be able to say when this thing happens, in the data, I need these three other events to kick off or take place. So you really realize like, hey, if you kind of fuzz your eyes, that's what all enterprise software is. Whether it's a person, a customer, like an employee, a customer, or a thing, you have an object, it has a bunch of metadata, and it goes through some sort of enterprise workflow. The system that owns the object and manages the workflow wins generally. So that's where we originally started building from. and then out of a spur of luck, so we had, sorry to run on about this, but basically we had very wide use cases and we had a product that we were fulfilling the use cases with, but even our marketing or website from that era was like super, super wide. Like you could do anything asset related with our solution. Right. And over time, uh, a company, Gree, uh, which is a large gaming company from Japan, had an American division that hit us up on Twitter and basically said, hey, could we use this for IT? We said, yeah, we think so. What does that even mean? What do you mean, IT? So we went in, had a meeting with them, and they were like, we really need a way to track all of the mobile devices that we use for conferences and shows and demos, all the laptops that we have here at corporate, and the various data center servers and things that we we put around uh, in data centers and other areas. And we're like, great, let's start thinking about what that looks like. Uh, Got a deal done in like 30 days, and that was our first true SaaS subscription customer in IT. Uh, and then we were like, well, we think this use case works and it sits with the SaaS kind of playbook. Let's run with this and see what happens. And, um, you know, a few years later, hundreds of customers doing this in a repeat cycle now. That's awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm always curious to see how people get into enterprise SaaS because consumer, it's it just seems like you have to have some fundamental insight on and some spidey sense on like where a user is going to want to see or use a product that's simpler and better than anything that they have. So like the mobile for Facebook didn't look like Facebook. It looked like Instagram. Totally. And um, they had to invent Instagram to kind of figure this out um, because Facebook had spent so much time, or Snapchat, for instance, had spent so much time 
worrying about uh, mobilizing their their platform that it just wasn't working. And with enterprise, it, it always seems to kind of start with some fundamental problem that people see while working at a company. Correct. Um, and and kind of having some enough of a pain point where they're just like, okay, a lot of other people must have this pain point as well. I can go build into it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you came out of the, the um, enterprise world. And obviously, kind of going back to martial arts here, it'd be like learning a cross-pollination of different types of martial arts uh, because you want to bring a, a consumer-like user experience and design and um, to the enterprise, which is, I'm sure you've used lots of different applications at large uh, companies. but They are lacking. <laughs> they are lacking. Yeah. I have some more stories for sure. <laughs> um, I have a bunch more questions on that. I'm curious. We never actually talked about um, Krav Maga. Have you ever oh, done yeah. Krav Maga? I haven't done a lot of Krav Maga myself, but I fundamentally believe it's a great self-defense art because it wraps so many good aspects from other martial arts into, and I don't mean this in a, in a pejorative way, it, it, into kind of a cookie-cutter way of doing things, you know, Scratch them, do this, kick them the balls, run the other direction, for example. Yeah. Um, so I think Krav Maga, uh, in terms of ROI, bang for your buck, you're gonna you're gonna learn some great self defense skills. Yeah, and the people that learn it don't typically learn it just for the like. You love martial arts for the the practice of being a martial artist. Correct. Um, for me, it's meditation and motion. It's it's transcended it. the fighting or self defense aspects of it. And it's using energy and flow and... Uh, exactly. Yeah. Or l- kind of reinforcing that I can be uncomfortable or be comfortable in uncomfortable settings, get my way out of them, advance, get better, progress, be a better person, all those things. Yeah. It's just a vehicle for human development at this point for me. Have you have you seen um, the Jason Bourne series? Of course. All right. Like, what what, what was he practicing? Uh, I'm, sure you've done, you, I'm sure you have friends in this space that, like, teach uh, actors how to fight i do yeah i i actually have a very good friend who's a stunt coordinator and has worked on some really great shows and movies i'm not sure if i'm supposed to talk about them but um he's worked on some really cool stuff and i think choreography is is all about you know drawing from drawing orthogonally from multiple martial arts and being able to say well what's going to look best here is a muay thai elbow and what's going to look coolest here is some sort of sea lot night fighting defense and then uh, everything's going to go back to some traditional wushu or kung fu and being able to blend that all together. How real is that, though? Like, do people actually I think there's, do that? Um, not. It's always going to be more exaggerated and dramatized in, in film or in shows. Um, but there are some that have done a really good job, like John Wick, for example. The whole point of that movie, and I haven't watched it too closely, was that he was a gun guy. So everything he was trying to do was get to the point where he could shoot you. Yeah. And all the hand-to-hand martial arts he used were just to create separation and shoot you. So he was using a lot of throws and a lot of like arm locks and like joint techniques just to get to a point where you're neutralized and then he shoots you. Yeah. So it's an interesting use of different martial arts blending into a martial art that doesn't really exist, which is like gun control. Yeah, and it's interesting. Jason Bourne was an anti-gun guy. Like, he did not want to have to shoot people. Correct. Right. He was breaking people off with his hands. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was a big Jason Bourne fan, so. Yeah, the, I love the series. Yeah, yeah. It's um, like how my dad and I, like, relate. We just watch. Bourne? Yeah, Bourne, yeah. <laughs> are you, 
yeah are you more into born or like uh batman uh i think more into born i i'm a little bit um exhausted of the hero okay stuff yeah um my friends and i have this uh this hypothetical question of who would win in a fight, Bruce Wayne or Jason Bourne. I, I just think Jason Bourne would crush in a fight. But. I think Jason Bourne would win. He's more specialized. He's been doing it, you know, as yeah. a career. Um, he's not just moonlighting. Totally. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, yeah. So. The 12 year old version of me would hate myself right now, by the way, for saying that <laughs> I was a huge Batman fan growing up. I still am. Uh, <laughs> One of the best uh, things that I think you get out of startups is the exact same thing that you get out of martial arts, which is you're constantly in uncomfortable situations. You have to figure out how to way, a way to get out of them and level up. Absolutely. Um, and as a startup founder, you're just in this from from very, very early on. But then also, like one of the things that we vet when we bring people on our team is, and one of the questions I always ask people are like, um, I always say kind of tell me about you, like the, your, your life story and kind of the major decisions that you've had at different points in your life and how you had to kind of, um, uh, navigate through them. And really it, it, it's for me, it's getting an understanding of the uncomfortable situations that people have been in for whatever circumstances, um, whatever the circumstances may have been at the time and how they, like what their decision tree was and how they had to kind of figure out how to get past them because it's um, that adversity that kind of builds character, I think. And so um, when we're adding people to the team, that's something I'm always vetting for. I'm guessing you guys have seen something similar as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're always asking those tough questions and uh, always relaying that back to our kind of cultural guide to see if they fit on the team based on their answers. Mm. What's the culture like? Uh, umnitsa where did the name come from uh, umnitsa is a russian term for clever or intelligence but the za at the end is acutification so you would only say to the youth uh, the idea being that like if your nephew broke up a fight between you and your brother an argument between you and your brother you'd be like ah, oh, he gets it he's such an umnitsa or he you know brings home good grades he's such an umnitsa and the idea is that uh the name should transcend us so it's it's us and a number of other enterprise software startups that are building amazing applications that are better than what's out there today. And we're, our generation is like the umnitsas of enterprise software that are bringing better apps to business. Oh, I like it. Who came up with it? Uh, Arthur, my co-founder and CEO. Okay, cool. Uh, do, do your other co-founders do martial arts as well? I have been trying to get them into it for a long time, <laughs> but they, they like uh, golf a lot more. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Which is also challenging. And sure. <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> uh, so what's the culture like? Like, and, and I'm curious how you guys have designed for culture. Yeah, uh, we've tried to keep it really simple. So we want people that are intelligent, adaptable, like to win, but they don't have sharp elbows. They're respectful. So we try to line everything up to, are they intelligent? Do they have respect? Do they like to win? You know, and can they adapt to any situation? Because as a startup, you will have to adapt. You will have to change. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how how has being a martial artist affected your psyche and morale as a startup founder? Like, I'm sure you've had lots of ups and downs where you might have felt like quitting or 
Um, I think it's definitely given me a layer of, of stoicism, I suppose. So like nothing's ever as good as it seems. Nothing's ever as bad as it seems. That doesn't mean I'm emotionally muted. Yeah. But I'm not. And, but, and they, they feed back into each other, by the way. I, we're talking very one way around how martial arts has helped me as a founder. But being a founder has helped me as a martial artist, too. Um, so they really go hand in hand. They, they feed off each other. I wouldn't be as good of a martial artist, I don't think, without having this entrepreneurial experience. And I definitely wouldn't be as good of a founder or, you know, a founder at all if, if it wasn't for the martial arts experience. Mm, that's so, interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's I, I've just realized that, you know, nothing's ever as good as it seems and nothing's ever as bad as it seems. And that almost has a negative connotation, maybe the way I'm saying it, but it really is meant to be a good thing. Like. I don't tie so much of my identity to the thing. And I realize that I'm just happy that it's happening and I'm going to be like 100% focused and in uh, to participate. But I no longer make founder, entrepreneur, startup guy my identity. I no longer make martial artist my identity. I don't make my ethnicity my identity. I just I try to separate from all identity and just be the best version of what I need to be in that moment. Initially, when I was kind of getting started out, I would design my life around being and having and identifying as a startup founder. So everything that I would do outside of being a startup founder would be meant to serve me being a startup founder, whether it's um, like I've gotten into things like Buddhism, Stoicism, uh, I got into running, um, lifting, and then um, like reading. Those are kind of my core activity or hiking, that kind of stuff, um, core activities outside of, of being a startup founder. But those types of things have been very meditative, cathartic in order to enable me to kind of, um, de-stress or just get certain energy out of my system when, so that when I come back the next day, I'm better at what I can do and I can kind of get that release elsewhere. Uh, very recently, um, my, I just had a, um, guy named Igor Hiller on, on this podcast and he's a comedian and we talked a lot about identity and, um, I, I don't know if you follow kind of, um, Jim Carrey, um, but he, I mean, I know who he is. He's an amazing comedian. Yeah. He's an awesome comedian and he, um, he talks a lot about identity as well. He once, um, he once told me. Uh, I met him once in Hawaii randomly. Awesome. Uh, and he once told me, um, you know, he used to think that I was just this guy uh, named Jim experiencing the world. And now I think and I believe that I'm the world and the universe experiencing this guy. Uh, and there's just this certain sense of um, ego that is tied up with, oh, here's what I do for a living and, and here's how I'm going to value my work and my time and myself uh, versus, and, and that ego is kind of what kind of propels us to try to master certain crafts. And then um, when you kind of set that ego aside, and this is the practice, I don't think any anyone that I know has mastered it, but it's um, how do you use yourself in, from like a third, third point of view uh, or kind of an observatory state where you're saying, okay, I'm going to master the craft or the artistry of being the best martial artist or being the best uh, founder or sales leader or whatever it is. 
and how am I going to use myself in these situations, identity aside? Um, That's a great practice. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the ego gets in the way so much. So it, it, you have to make a good habit of reminding yourself, but I think that that that's absolutely uh, brilliant and profound. Yeah. I, I, I found that some of the most talented people I know are also people that have big egos. So you, right. you almost like, for instance, if you are fighting someone or you're sparring against someone, like you almost like want to have an ego. You have to want to win. Right. You have to want to be there and you have to want to win. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and then like separating yourself from that is the practice. That's the hard part. Yeah, absolutely. Because hey, it there's a, I think there's a sweet spot when it comes to ego, right? You don't want to have so much that you, you overdo it or you become too much. Uh, in any one direction and you don't want to have so little that you don't care. Yeah. So you need to be there and you need to show up and want to win. But as you've gotten older, how's your relationship with ego changed? Cause you seem like a pretty level headed guy. I, I think I've figuratively and actually been punched in the face enough now to where <laughs> I don't think, uh, probably as highly of myself as I did when I was younger. I think when I was younger and y- you may relate being a, being a younger founder, um, I thought I had to be more than I was, look older than I was, act more experienced than I was to get ahead. Um, and now I'm just, I'm, I'm okay with where I'm at. I'm constantly trying to learn every day. I, I know what I have experience in and I know that I saw it from my perspective and there's different ways to arrive at the same conclusion. So I'm open to those as well. Um, but I know there's so much that I don't have experience in and through the process of speaking to other founders, interviewing key executives, and even just speaking internally to like one of our support people or one of our product people and gaining customer insights that I didn't have before learning that stuff from them is amazing. So I'm just trying to learn from, from every angle. Yeah. I I, I like that. I, um, I also feel like, you know, when you're younger, you, you have a lot to prove, explain and justify, and you end up kind of designing with your actions, uh, designing your life to be in a position to prove, explain, justify and embellish. And, um, you know, I remember one of the first bios I ever wrote about myself, it was like, wow, like I've done none of these things actually. (laughs) And, uh, but like, this all sounds great. Um, and as you get older, you kind of realize the whole proving, explaining, justifying, like what, you know, it's all just kind of uh, for show. And um, uh, like the relationship I've, I've come um, to, to have is if I'm not happy with uh, what I'm doing and um I'm okay with that, but I'm, I'm, if I'm not committed to actually improving on it, I don't even bother doing it. So as an example, um, if I am interested in learning how to play the piano and I'm not happy with how I'm playing it, um, if I'm not interested in learning how to improve, I don't even try playing. And so there's this, um, art in like going through the struggle with whatever it is that you decide to get involved with whether it's being a founder or a martial artist or any anything that you actually do, 
I think human beings need struggle to actually have some sort of purpose. Yeah. But then there's the mastery of like getting better at it over a period of time that gives us this fulfillment um, with whatever it is. It could be any number of things. And um, you can't do everything. You got to pick and choose like where you gravitate towards. Yeah, where you're going to invest your time and energy and excitement. Totally. Um, I have a number of questions on... Um, Enterprise sales that yeah. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on. Sure. So when you guys first got that big deal, um, that big first customer, and you decided to kind of go down that one path, uh, how hard was it to kind of burn the boats and say, all right, we're not going to do the rest of this stuff, and we're really going to focus all of our efforts on this path? It was actually extremely challenging. And um I don't know if I've ever spoken about this publicly, but we had two different, I mean, we had a really large one customer, one off use case. And then we had a, the the other side, which was this like IT use case. And uh, we were gaining traction, gaining multiple customers there. Um, but the other project was with a really well-known car manufacturer that happens to be in Fremont. And it was a very large project. And it was really, because we could only do one of them and it was towards the end of the year and we just decided to go after the repeatable business. So it was, it was quite challenging to, I mean, we really had to learn to say no early on in the business. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Did you guys ever think, uh, you would go back or did you kind of, we, yeah, we always thought we would go back and, and win that business later or when we had teams that could support it, we'd come back to them. I mean, we still have the relationships in play, but um, I think we're still in a, in a focused window. Yeah. And, and when you're kind of testing and iterating through how, how long was that phase? You guys, you, you've been around for four years, right? Yeah. I mean, we spent the first, f- first year of it trying to figure out who we were, who we wanted to be and talking to various CIOs and IT leaders and things like that to understand what their challenges were. And, um, and, and then the cost, like, like once you kind of figure out exactly who you're going after, the cost of acquiring that specific customer becomes drastically cheaper. Absolutely, right. yeah, because you can, I can get on a whiteboard and I can write 20 things about that persona, that customer persona, that buyer persona, um, that makes it really easy to go pull up that yeah. guy on any data site like LinkedIn or something else. And you know exactly the problem that you're solving for that specific person. Exactly, and then you just build a kit, right? You build messaging and collateral and stuff that's all geared around that buyer persona or a few other buyer personas and you go after and... How, how long was the phase of like going from that general phase where you didn't quite have that specific persona? The creative period. Yeah, the creative period. Uh, maybe post the one year mark um, to kind of figuring out, okay, this is the persona we're going to fo- focus on. Because I'm sure there was multiple personas that were interested in you guys. Yeah, definitely. So I think we... Um we got extremely lucky. And this goes back to another martial arts story. Sorry, I keep going back to this. No, it's great. But, and this has nothing to do with the martial arts. It just happened that I was leaving jujitsu one day. And uh, a, a great guy who's extremely humble and, and should be more well-known in the Valley named Kaveh Rostampur was also leaving. And he started a company with a few other folks called Meltwater in Sweden. And they brought the business here and, you know, very sales-focused company. So I was telling him, hey, you know, we have a couple customers and we think this is what we want to do. And we're going to, like, write blogs and, you know, maybe, like, that'll work. Or we'll go to, like, trade shows and spend a bunch of money. 
And he's like, why would you do all that marketing stuff? Do you know who you need to be calling? I'm like, yeah, you know, we think it's like the director level of IT. And he's like, great. Do you know what kind of companies you want to reach out to? And it's like, yeah, you know, I think we want to go for like upper mid market just so we can prove and iterate quickly. And he's like, great. Make a list of 100. Get up on Monday. Dial through directory. Ask to speak to, you know, Avish, the director of IT at X Corp that has 2,000 employees. And keep hammering that guy over calls and emails until you get him to say no to you. And I was like, oh, well, that doesn't seem like a hack. That doesn't seem like a growth technique. That seems like what people were doing. You know, that seems like what my dad was doing in the 90s. That doesn't sound right. Um, but we tried it. And outbound sales worked for us. So we went really hard on the outbound sales and probably got our first 50 customers all outbound, all through very basic, dialing through directory with a very simple message interrupting people in the middle of their day, getting them to show up to a demo and uh, running them through a fairly rudimentary pipeline to close or process to close. No kidding. Yeah. And then we started doing other stuff like building integrations, getting on app stores, getting referrals from that and so on. Um, but our first 50 you know, mid-market and small enterprise customers were all driven through outbound sales, outbound cold calling. Where did you learn how to cold call? I think there are some intangible skills just around like being hungry and adaptive and wanting to win and um, friendly competitiveness and stuff like that that were there anyway. Um, but I learned how to cold call from Kabe. We sat down at the Bay Club in San Francisco. It was uh, my co-founder Arthur and I. And he's like, listen, you guys are not too good for this. You need to get, you know, this is like a Friday afternoon. He's like, you need to get up on Monday. You need to sit in a room together. And you need to call down your list. You each need to make a list of 100. You need to call down your list. Every time you get a win, you should high five and then sit back down and keep calling. And just tell them what you do. Tell them you're a founder because that is going to work well for you. Tell them you're looking for you know some feedback, but you have a product you think they'd be interested in. And use that positioning and go win. And through a lot of trial and error, I got a little bit better outbound. Yeah. I actually don't think I'm very good at outbound, but that it worked well enough to get the initial set of customers and enough money to raise money and hire salespeople. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so were there ever points where you kind of speculated on a big launch and, um, hired around it and then had the launch go not nearly as well as you wish it had went and kind of needed to let go of people? Um, uh, yeah. So there, we had a D day. I don't know. It's a, I don't know. Is a D day a good one or a bad one? It's. I think it's a bad one. Yeah, we had a we had a bad day, uh, where we definitely thought we were going to raise by a certain point, and we were carrying a bag of uh, eight or so great sales reps. Eighty five percent of the team was above quota. Um, the remainder were newer or on their way, you know, or not a good fit. I mean, naturally, it's a hedging strategy with sales. Um, but we had a good team. They were just executing on the wrong number. And they were the type of team to get deals of that size done. And as soon as we realized that we weren't going to raise and we had to change the, the pricing and product strategy around that, uh, you know, we let 90% of the team go, kept the, sales wow. kept the sales manager just because he was excellent um, and had built a great team. So we thought, you know, he could do it again and built and kept the top rep because he was frankly too good to let go. Um, and kind of huddled up and, and, and rebuilt and spent the next year rebuilding. Wow. Yeah. How long ago was that? Uh, about a year and a half ago now. Holy cow. Yeah. 
Um, that that's a big one. And how did you pick morale up afterwards? Uh, it was really tough because after that happened, we had, so that was all. So after that, we had some voluntary term as well. We had people that were like, Ooh, I've, I've, I've heard of this story before the startup fails. I'm going to leave before that happens. Um, so that was a very uncomfortable situation. And, you know, I, we kind of just got everyone together for an all hands and said, Hey, you know, this is what happened. And it sucks. And, you know, we, we love every single person that we had to let go of, but we were super open about it. And we showed them the PNL and we showed them why we had to let them go. Uh, but we also showed them why the business fundamentally is still a good business and that the unit economics work really well and that we're setting new targets. And this is what we're doing tactically and strategically to get there. And the people that were in that room that day, I, I think we've kept most of them. We have people that are long tenure that are, that are, you know, have, have been at the company long tenured in startup land is what I mean, at least, um, two year plus tenures and they believed in the mission and they helped us fight it. Yeah. When, when you guys go to market, um, to, to raise and you may or may not want to talk about this, but I'm just, I'm just curious, like oftentimes we as entrepreneurs think we know what to optimize for. And when we are building a company, we, we have metrics in our mind. And then when we go and talk to a VC, the VC not only sees our company, but they see all of these other companies that are doing similar type of things. And so they have different types of metrics uh, that they might be looking at. And we realize that in order to raise cash, we have to be optimizing around different metrics. And it might be, you know, the classic example of, of, of this is uh, growth rate versus revenue and, and getting to cash flow break even versus kind of figuring out how to um, scale growth. Right. Oftentimes there is kind of a misalignment where an investor might want you to have a really, really high growth rate uh, because they know that they can inject cash in the, in the company and be able to get cash out. Uh, but as, as a founder, you might not necessarily know if cash is guaranteed uh, to be coming into the business. So you're kind of focusing on going after a lower growth rate, but, but um, getting to cash flow break even. I'm guessing you guys had to grapple with that. Absolutely. I mean, and I get it from the VC side, right? Yeah. They only have so many deals that they can do a year. They have to get a large multiple on their money back. And they really need to invest in companies that have an extremely high growth rate where the metrics make sense and, and they can see the growth rate growing into the type of market that they can imagine or that they need to get their money out. Um, whereas on our side, to grow that quickly, we would have been losing money hand over fist as, as most companies do. And we really like the tighter unit economics that were going to lead us to drive a kind of mid-growth profitable business. As soon as we realized we weren't going to raise, and there's multiple reasons we didn't raise on top of metrics. I think, you know, we could take that offline. I could give you some sure. funny stories. Um, we, we were like, okay, this is who we need to be to raise, but we're not going to do that right now. And we're going to focus on the fundamentals of the business and make sure that we can turn to a to kind of cash flow positive, profitable business, uh, even if it's by inches to, to keep this company going and hiring the right people that we need to, to grow the business. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also get it from a VC perspective because they're, they're out there, they they raise these like billion dollar funds and they have to allocate cash, but they're, they're now allocating cash towards fewer and fewer companies yeah. that have a very, very high, um, or, or fast growing trajectory. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so fewer companies are getting more of the cash. So they do a lot more growth stage investing, but they want to, because there's so many series A type companies, they now have the task of differentiating between, uh, you know, signal and noise. Right. Um, so I, I get it from the investor perspective. It's just an interesting dynamic from the founder perspective as well, where, uh, it's like you have to manage risk. Uh, and, and so the way you do that is, is constantly you're making bets yeah. on like, well, how quickly do I want to scale up the team? What's my confidence that we actually close around or, or get to some benchmark revenue wise. So yeah. it's a tough position to be in, especially as a first time founder when there's not a lot of trust on the other side of the table. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we want to be a fundable company. Um, but at the same time, we want to make sure that our company exists this time next year and is thriving this time next year. Totally. Have you guys raised it all? Yeah, we raised uh, two and a half, just under two and a half million dollars. Okay. okay. Um, and then definitely came up against like the Series A squeeze. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, I think it taught us a lot about entrepreneurship and being a good business leader because we had to, you know, in that moment realize that we weren't going to raise. And if we wanted to keep the business going, as mentioned, had to let people go, had to tighten down the reins, understand what our growth dials were, and invest the very little capital that we had into those kind of growth dials and, and make sure that the company did well. And uh, I'm a f- far better business person than I was two years ago because of that experience. Yeah. Totally. And, I, and I may have been spoiled if we had, had done a $10 million round. Totally. You know? Yeah, 100%. Um that and it creates a number of other issues where like there's this certain level of urgency that you have when you have a, a finite amount of cash in the bank and you have a runway that is shrinking Yeah, and it builds urgency. It forces you to focus right? Uh, because resources are constrained. Uh, human resources are constrained and product resources are, are constrained. And so you have to figure out, okay, who are the absolutely essential people that I need to to build this company with me? And um, what is the absolutely essential product we need to go after a customer where we think there's, you know, room for growth um, or room for product market fit, I should say. And when you have too much money in the bank, there's just that discipline that kind of gets a little lazy. And yeah. um, you you hire the wrong people and you every idea becomes a good idea and so you start working on building all sorts of features and all sorts of different products and kind of going in all these different directions and um and i've just seen that backfire a bunch yeah 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 having your back against the wall is a great way to have your survival instincts kick in you do some pretty amazing things when that happens totally but there's there's no right way or one way to build a business so yeah you know, all power to all the different ways. I would love to learn a little bit about like how you manage your energy levels. Yeah. So I think energy is a big thing for entrepreneurs, right? You need to be able to kind of come into the office, set a tone for the day, have a lot of energy through meetings. You're doing a lot of different things. So you're not like plugging away at one problem normally all day and you're kind of flying around doing different things and you need to bring energy to the situation. Uh, If nothing else, just to pick up the team and motivate the team around you. Like they need to feel like you're leading and you have, you're bringing a ton of energy to the, to the equation. Um, so one way I've kind of figured out how to do this for myself, at least is by being on a ketogenic diet, which means that I'm eating a lot of, uh, healthy fats, 
Uh, I'm eating kind of mid-range proteins, and I'm barely eating any uh, complex carbohydrates or uh, processed sugars, refined sugars at all. Okay. Um, so, I mean, let me take a step back. What, what, where I was two years ago was I was about 205 to 208 pounds. I was pretty fit, so I wore the weight well. It wasn't like a problem. I wasn't overweight by any standard. Um, but after I'd have lunch, heavy sandwich or something like that, I'd always be low energy from about 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. I'd be lower energy in the mornings and would need a lot of coffee to kind of get over the meal I had the night before or the heavy breakfast I may have eaten that morning. So I was always kind of battling against tiredness and low energy with additional coffee. And then after work, I would make it to jujitsu or whatever my activity of that evening was, but it was like a struggle to get there and getting there was the hardest part. And then when I was there, I was like, okay, finally I'm here. I can just like push through this thing. And what was your sleep schedule like? Uh, my sleep schedule, so my sleep schedule has not changed, but it's, it's, I normally sleep at 1230 ish and wake up around seven, seven thirty ish. And you're drinking coffee first thing in the morning. I get up in the morning, I drink a bunch of water, like as much water as I can stomach. And this is something I've you consistently know, like two, done. Two years ago. Yeah, this is something I've consistently yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Drink as much water as I possibly can, and then I just start drinking coffee, like throwing it back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How many coffees are you having? Okay, so today I woke up and I had a cup of coffee, then I had a Blue Bottle meeting, a meeting at Blue Bottle, and then I just drank uh, uh, another cold brew about half an hour ago. Okay. So... It's like three. It's like so, three, but all three were very strong. Okay, so uh, number of questions. So two years ago, you're drinking coffee throughout the day. Yep. Doesn't the caffeine, like I've had this issue in, with, with coffee myself is um, when I used to drink coffee, I was pretty addicted to it and I would drink two to three cups a day and it would be the thing that sustained like my energy throughout the day. I was sleeping five, six hours a night maybe. Um, but right when I woke up, I needed coffee to kind of boost, um, and get my day going. Mm -hmm. And when you drink it past, I think like noon, maybe any coffee in the afternoon for me, at least I know it affects my REM cycles. Mm -hmm. I know it affects my sleep. Um, and I just wake up kind of cloudy the next day and I just need that. I, I fall into that pattern. Of you're, like, you're in the loop here in the caffeine loop. Yeah. In the loop. Yeah. Uh, so you've had that or you, you haven't noticed it being in your bloodstream while you sleep? Uh, so I don't think I'm as sensitive to caffeine. And today's an especially high caffeine day. Yeah. Um, but normally I try not to have coffee in the afternoon or evening at all. Okay. So so two years ago, you that was kind of your routine. What what changed? How did you adapt it? So uh, with caffeine or with food specifically? All of the above. Okay, great. So with food, um, I was introduced to more of a kind of modified paleo or keto diet through reading Rob Wolf and Mark Sisson's uh, books and just general kind of information they would put online. And then I looked at a lot of the research that Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Dom D'Agostino were doing. And it I was a lot of Rhonda Patrick. Yeah, she's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it was like a lot of interesting stuff around, um, you know, just like all cause mortality and how much a diet like this, like lowers that uh, across different sexes, age groups, things like that. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I'll give this thing a shot. It sounds kind of difficult. Um, I pretty much immediately lost 15 pounds. So I was always stable at 205. Now I'm kind of stable at 185. And this morning I was actually 181. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that came off over two years or? That came off in the first three months. Okay. 
and and kind of never looked back and was not a difficult thing. Yeah. Uh, so obviously there were some like aesthetic benefits, but most of the benefits that I noticed and the reason I stayed on the diet were because of how much more energy I felt that I had during the day, physically and mentally. So I didn't have that morning fog. I would wake up and I'd be pretty high energy in the morning. Still drink coffee because I just love it. I think it's like the main thing I'm addicted to. Yeah. Um, it's just an extra boost, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, but after lunch, I don't feel like I need a coffee. I don't feel like I need a nap. I could schedule a tough 1 p.m. meeting and be, you know, fully aware in the zone for it, so to say. And uh, after work, when I'm heading to a, a jujitsu practice or kickboxing or whatever it may be, I feel, you know, just as excited about it um, as any other point in the day. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And then the last question I had was um, on kind of the genesis story of how you guys got started and like when, what was your, how has your diet evolved when you worked in call it corporate America yeah. and you transitioned to being a startup founder yeah, and you transitioned through, you know, kind of the ups and downs of um, running the company where you were before you guys raised any money, before you guys had any revenue or any customers or a product. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in corporate America, the meal was almost like the break from the day, right? Oh my God, lunch. We're all going to go eat a big bowl of pho with a bunch of noodles in it and we'll all like be crashed out for a couple hours, but it's okay because the afternoon meetings are internal group meetings where I don't have to say anything anyway. Right. So great. That's easy. Um, and when decided to break away and, you know, do the freedom of entrepreneurship, which there's a whole nother discussion, whether that's actually a golden handcuff or freedom or whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah. anyway, I, I was always trying to like max out my energy levels. And so I thought maybe if I eat healthier carbs or maybe no carbs at all or something like that. And I think the missing element for me was just decreasing sugars, increasing fats, like healthy fats. Yeah. That, that kind of switch is what made a huge difference for me. You know, I've kind of had that weight issue my whole life. Like I would be in really good shape. I had the endurance to keep up with anyone. I, I had good strength and, you know, flexibility and all the different like athletic attributes that you would want. But I always had, I was always carrying a little bit of extra weight. I was never as like lean as some of the other guys on the team, for example, for in terms of jujitsu. And uh, I was always like, oh, well, this is just my body type. This is how I am, whatever. And so I made that excuse for myself. And uh, over time I had, uh, a couple other buddies that started doing the ketogenic diet and losing a bunch of weight. So I was like, okay, maybe I should try this. And when I did try it and I lost the weight and then I got the energy levels that I was looking for that like Superman level of energy, um, or super version of myself, at least, um, that's when I really stuck to it. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know if that answered the question more, maybe around. Well, yeah, yeah. But like how, how has your, um, I would argue that, um, being a founder, helps you have more control over your schedule and more control over when you eat and how you eat and what you eat because you kind of dictate certain things even though you're kind of working around the clock often um in many different ways but you're you mentioned your co-founders they aren't nearly as into martial arts as you do they follow similar diets as you as well yeah so one co-founder can literally the guy can eat like pancakes and waffles and be like super lean six pack and like has no problem and oh, i hate those people yeah and he can like sit at his desk and coat away all day with headphones on and he's like looks athletic and can like sprint from here to wherever and have no problems how old is he uh he's 25 
well, so we'll see if that changes. Yeah. Um, but his parents are both kind of freak athletes as well. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's just in his blood. Yeah. Um, and my other co-founder is, uh, he also follows a strict ketogenic diet. Not, uh, I mean, props to him. He's very athletic. He played a uh, pro-am soccer in Switzerland and he's like a great athlete. Um, but definitely doesn't like, isn't as active today as he was back then, but still got a ton of benefit, uh, physically and, uh, kind of energy and mentally why, uh, from a mental perspective from the ketogenic diet as well. So you guys have baked it into the culture of the company to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. So w- one of the other key executives on the management team actually makes fun of us all the time. Cause he's like, I thought I was really, uh, kind of um, strict on what I ate and, and felt bad when I was at restaurants, always customizing meals, but I'm nothing compared to you guys. And yeah. he makes jokes about it. He's like, well, you know, if we're, if we're hiring a new candidate, he'll ask him, he's like, but do you like Italian food? You know, or like stuff like that, just to, just to poke fun at us. I'm, I, uh, you know, I, we, we can talk about this offline too, but I, I don't have a problem now going out with friends and just being the guy who customizes my meal a little bit more at the restaurant than, than the rest. Yeah. So how do you get over the social, implications of that uh i mean if my friends make fun of me about it is that what you mean no i mean like as an example if people are going out for pizza yeah i'm just not gonna eat the pizza and you'll have like a salad or something like that yeah or i just know that we're going out for pizza and i'll eat something before or plan to eat afterward okay and like people will give me like shit about it and it'll be a funny thing but i'll just explain that like guys like sugar is the enemy it's terrible for you and it causes kind of low wave inflammation constantly. And I'm just not going to do that. And inflammation breeds more inflammation. Exactly. Pizza doesn't seem sugary on the onset, but carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates get stored as sugars. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Your body has a high insulin response to it. It becomes glucose, breaks down a sugar. Right. Cool. Unless, I mean, unless you eat pizza and get outside and sprint all of it off in a half an hour window. It's an available energy source that's super quick, right? Yeah. Well, you will have a cheat meal where you're eating pizza. It's just, it's few and far between. Yeah, it's few and far between. And personally, pizza is just not my favorite food. Yeah, yeah, If I'm going to have a cheat meal, it's generally related to ice cream. I'm, uh, <laughs> I've got I'm an that. addict. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. Uh, Ramin, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been awesome to have you on. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thank you, Avish. All right. Cheers. And that concludes this episode. For more information about our guest today, or to see a transcript of this episode, check out makingnote.com. And if you'd like to learn more about how to take less notes and be more present in meetings, check out sonia.ai.